how often do you see a badass candidate call out the corruption of their corporate opponent? Well, you're about to see one right now. Kimberly DeCoupe is running in Pawtucket, Rhode Island to represent District 62. And she did that in the middle of a debate and it made national headlines. Kimberly, welcome. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, no problem. So uh, you know what, here, let's go to the tape. Let's go to you actually doing this. <laughs> and then uh, and then your opponent walked out and I wanna talk about the walkout and I wanna talk about how the race is going. And if you're part of the cooperative, which sounds super badass. All right, let's watch the tape first. Who are they, Kimberly? Who are they, Kimberly? Nicholas Hammond, Peter Batista, Zachary Darrow, William Murphy. These are the lobbyists for the state. Currently, they are lobbyists for many things at the state house, not just the state. And one of them is the stadium, and actually, one of them is also a lobbyist for fossil fuel companies. So there you go as well. It doesn't have to be this way. We can have a vibrant city where government cares for us, but I think we need to be raving. Oh dang! For what we deserve: good schools, good union jobs, Thank you, everyone. a clean environment, affordable quality housing. These are the things that make life dignified for people here. And I vow to fight through every corporate obstacle to deliver a universal, high standard of living for all our people. You can hold me to that. All right, so Kimberly, there's a couple things that happened there that we got to talk about. So first of all, she says about the lobbyists that you said she's taking money from, etc. She's like, oh yeah, I named them. And man, did you have receipts? Uh, were you expecting that she would say that? Um, no, she actually denied it at first. If like longer video, you can see that she says, no, I didn't take any money. Um, I didn't expect her to say, you know, name them, but I had the names right there ready to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's called being prepared. All right, uh, and then at later, as it looked like it was during your closing remark that she walked out, which is incredibly rude. Yeah. Is that what happened? And what do you think drove her to do that? Um, it was during uh, my closing remarks. Um, I think we had a back and forth over the lobbyist money, um, and then over some of like. Her being in the district, um, not being active enough within the district, not knocking any doors or letting folks know what's happening at the state house. I actually didn't know she left at first. I was told after the debate was already over because I was like reading my closing statement. So I didn't know she left till it was all over. But I was like, okay, if you wanna leave the debate, great. That's an attack ad for me. Yeah, so Kimberly, um, for, for the last 40 years, Democrats have been told by consultants and the media, don't you dare talk about the campaign contributions and the lobbyists. Uh, that's very uncivil and it will not, it, uh, the voters will not like it, no one will like it. What they of course mean is we won't like it, we're part of the corruption. And, and But they scared progressives into thinking that the world would collapse in on itself if they ever did something like what we just saw you do in the debate. So I'm curious, did the world collapse in on itself? Or did you survive saying something true in a debate? No, I mean, we survived and we're doing better than ever. So, but I do, that is something that you hear a lot in politics, which is like, oh, you gotta keep civil. And it's like, what's being civil? Me having to be okay with your corruption? Like your corruption is what's uncivil here. Yeah, yeah, I mean, taking money from fossil fuel companies, 
and their lobbyists right. is a thousand times more uncivil uh, than saying that you're taking money from lobbyists, fossil fuel money, whichever one applies to whichever politician. But I'll, so that, that brings us to to Mary Messier, the person, the incumbent that was in that video. Okay, yeah. so. In a sense, it was a classic progressive versus corporate Democrat clash. Because I read the summary of the debate, and every time you said to do something, $19 minimum wage or health care for everyone, etc., she said, Well, I mean, I kind of generally agree, but obviously not now, plus never, plus, you know, only a little bit, right? And so yeah. I'm, one of the things I'm curious about, I'm always curious about this, is how is the local media reaction? So, because normally, historically, what happens is they're like, Kimberly was super rude. You should never mention lobbyists. She's the bad guy. And this poor incumbent, I mean, she's obviously right. We should do those things, but 20 years from now and only 10%. Mm -hmm. So, but I don't know that that was the reaction at all here. So, what happened in Rhode Island? Um, so, we didn't get too much coverage on the debate, actually. We only had um, a local journalist here from the Valley Breeze um, cover us. And um, this particular journalist was actually a little upset about us, you know, at us because we put out this video and he felt like the video was not like he felt that the video was misleading because we we cut out, you know, where the the conversation happened, you know, with the lobbyists and the corporation money, and then we cut to when she left. So he felt like we did some, you know. Yeah. Misleading, editing, yeah. but we had to address that, and it came out that you know there was not in misleading. You literally left the debate eight minutes after we had that conversation. And if you notice yeah. the video, she picks up her bag when we're talking about the lobbyist money. Yeah, yes, yeah, she was getting ready then. It's true. So look, you didn't put the whole debate up, of course, because right. it's on Twitter, right? People's attention span is. Maximum one minute, but when we covered the story, it was perfectly clear to us that she walked out later, and we explained that she walked out later during the closing statement, right? So to me, what that just brought up was like, oh well, you spoke really long, um, and so like obviously she left because you spoke for too long, and it's like we looked at how long I spoke; it was a minute and thirty seconds. That is too long. For somebody to stay for. I mean, it was obvious that she was very flustered because I brought in some facts um, that she didn't expect to hear. I mean, no, out of it, the debate was her. Yeah. Yeah, Kimberly, you just answered the question perfectly. So one journalist covered it and they criticized you for two things. And and by the way, I happen to read that story. And they <laughs> didn't criticize her for anything. They didn't talk about the campaign contributions, they didn't talk about the lobbyists. Uh, they put her saying later, maybe as like a positive, and but for you, speaking a minute and a half is too long, and her she definitely walked out, but they frame it as misleading. Right. Okay, it's, there's no end to it. There's no end to it. Where does all of the lobbyist money go? It goes to politicians who then spend it in media, and yeah. so hey, look at that. Media says. Oh, the beloved politicians who spend all the lobbyist money on us are great. It's the other guy that's putting it out. That's the problem. All right, so yeah. Kimberly, tell us about the cooperative because if people don't know it, it's in Rhode Island. It's badass. What is it? Um, so the cooperative, the Rhode Island Political Cooperative, we're a group of candidates, um, you know, regular working people here who are all running um, for a position, whether it's city council, 
um, state rep or like governor, lieutenant governor. Um, and we're all running on like Medicare for all, $19 minimum wage, Green New Deal, basically a package for working people here in Rhode Island, um, very ambitious package. So that's the political cooperative. Um, and I do think it's something that should be done in more states because it is true that we can get a few progressives in there, but if we don't hold the power within the state house as a whole, we can't get these things done. So what we did is now we're running, you know, like 30 plus candidates. Um, and another thing is the establishment has a hard time of keeping up with so many races. So a lot of the folks um, on their side, you know, get left behind because the establishment has to take care of so many races across the state. You put a lot of pressure on them. Yeah, no, no, it's it's amazing. It's a progressive takeover of the state if you guys can pull it off. The first round went spectacularly well. And that's why now Matt Brown and Cynthia Mendez are in great position to win the governorship and lieutenant governor positions. And so let's let's hope that happens. And and it's the cooperative reminds me of the Just Democrats, but just at the state level, right? Yeah. And if you and if you flood the zone, yeah, the establishment even they start to run out of money and trying to figure out where do I patch the holes here? Who's the most dangerous progressive who might actually help the people the most? Really increase their wages, etc. Because we got to defeat those guys. Oh my God! There's over 30 of them in a tiny state like Rhode Island. Oh no! Yeah, right? that's the sense I'm getting. Now the elections are about two weeks away. So give me your sense of on the ground. How's it going for you and the cooperative overall? Um, well, for me, it's been going really well. We've been knocking a lot of doors. Um, one of the things is since she was so inactive. A lot of people just don't know who she is. Like most of the people whose doors I knock on, they don't know who she is, despite her being the representative since like 2008. Um, and you'll hear that a lot in a lot of other races that the co-op is in, where the incumbent is so inactive that most people don't really know who this person is. Um, but we're all doing very well. A lot of uh, cooperative candidates are, you know, past their win numbers, so we're expecting some big wins come September. All right, and there's no truth to the rumor that decoupe is French for the cooperative. <laughs> I don't even know what that what my name means. I know it's French, but I don't know what it means in, in French. <laughs> okay, well I'll look into that. All right, and tell me about District 62 real quick. Is that the state assembly position, and and how big is it? That's because progressives have an advantage in smaller areas. So how many people normally vote in District 62? Um, in a primary like this one, we're looking at like 1,100 folks coming out to vote. So it's a very small race, um, partly because folks in Pawtucket tend to be very politically dejected. This is a working class city. Um, a lot of our like factories, we used to be a factory town, they're shut down. Um, so we've been hurt a lot by shipping of jobs away. So we're a pretty small town. Um, the race is pretty small, which means like knocking a lot of doors <clears throat> makes a big difference here. Yeah, it, it's not too big of a a, a district. Yeah, no, that explains it perfectly. Uh, if 1,100 people are going to vote, progressives have the advantage. So that's when the knocking on doors makes a big, big difference. So uh, everybody, uh, get out there and help, uh, Kimberly, all you can. We've got the links down below if you're watching this on YouTube or Facebook. And you just click on the links, it's in the description box, so easy. You can donate, you can go to our website. If you're in the area, go knock on doors with her, with everybody in the cooperative. 
and take over Rhode Island. And don't get discouraged about voting. Don't tell me all Pawtucket. No, go out and vote, okay? Yeah, yeah I just made a Pawtucket joke. Okay, all right, Kimberly Ducoupe, thank you for fighting hard. Thank you for mentioning the corruption and thank you for running. Uh, good luck. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. It means a lot. I've watched TYT for a long time um, and I've seen like especially what you've done with like the Justice Democrats. Um, so it's an honor to be here. <laughs> oh, Kimberly, thank you for confirming that. One of our members said she's got to have watched TYT. <laughs> oh yeah, like I, I've you know I've been in the movement for a little bit, helping Bernie. Um, 2016, 2020, I actually did a lot of work for Bernie in 2020. So heartbroken when he lost, um, but yeah, no, I've been around. I've definitely watched your show many, many times. That's awesome. Uh, and look, we were down in 2020, but we're back, okay? Yeah. The trick is you keep getting back up, keep getting back up. And here comes Kimberly Ducoupe. So everybody watch out. I love it, I love the cooperative, let's go vote. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. All right, in Enfield, North Carolina, they passed a resolution saying you gotta take down a Confederate monument. Mondale Robinson decided, yeah, I can do that. He decided to go do it himself personally. We're talking to Mondale in a second, but first I wanna show you the video of him demolishing the monument. I love this. Yo. It's time for this monument to come down. People voted, I tried with a hammer, that wasn't enough. So now here come the tractors. Drive it down. Yes, sirs. Yes, sirs. Yes, sirs. Death to the Confederacy around here. Push that little one over too, bro. All of it. Not in my town, not on my watch. Not in my town, not on my watch. Not in my town, not on my watch. Just like that. Just like that. Uh, well, it is his town because uh, Mondale is the mayor of Enfield, North Carolina. Uh, he's also the principal of Black Male Voter Project. We'll talk about both those things. Mondale, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be back, Jane. How are you? Uh, I'm awesome. Uh, I'm better now that I watched that video. All right, so tell me the story of uh, first uh, how it came to be that uh, that you got to a point where you could take that uh, plaque down, that statue down. Uh, and then I wanna talk about your family's past. And then I wanna talk about how to get black folks to vote, black males in particular. Uh, but so let's start with the monument, what happened? So actually, uh, this this is a, this is two, more than two years in the making, Jake. Um, bef even before I was mayor, the last board had actually voted. Uh, majority of the last board voted to take this monument down two years ago in 2020. But what happened was somehow uh, those minutes disappeared from the meeting um, and from the record. So before I tore it down, um, we actually took it back to the board on August the 15th to vote on it again. And what, what happened was the four black Democrats in our town, which is uh, more than 90% black, voted 
to tear it down and the one white Republican voted to keep it. But in that conversation, the white Republican who said we should keep the monument and shouldn't tear it down, he said, Turn the monument down would cost the town $20,000. I said, oh, don't worry about that. I've already talked to somebody with a truck that can take it to the dump as soon as I take it down the night after this meeting's over and it won't cost the town anything because I'll pay for it. Um, so that happened, but the meeting actually was a three hour meeting. So I didn't get to take it down that night. But that following Sunday, the person who had the truck to take it to the dumpster was available. I went out there and I tore that sign down. <clears throat> Problem solved. Problem solved. <laughs> didn't cost 20000 at all. Okay, and I, one of my favorite lines was, I tried it with a hammer. Um, <laughs> so now people caught feelings. I mean, you, everybody just saw the video, a giant Confederate flag in the middle of a town, by the way, in the South, that's 90% black. So who caught feelings and why and what they do? Um, well. I would I, I would like to be, uh, I'm not trying to be coy, but white racists called filling. And the reason they call filling is because they try to make this into a veterans monument. Uh, I find that extremely ironic um, because that monument has been sitting in infield, North Carolina since 1928. Uh, World War II had not been fought then, the Gulf War had not been fought then, Korean War, the Vietnam War, none of those wars had been fought when that monument was placed in infield. The main purpose, the original intent of that monument was to honor Confederate veterans. I find it impossible to believe that you can honor Confederate veterans and US veterans, those are not the same things, on the same monument. Also, you cannot disregard the original intent. So the people that caught feelings said they were catching feelings in honor of veterans, but their response was never about the military. Their response was about you know racial epithets or me being a POS, et cetera, et cetera. All, all of the racial things that you experience or would, would expect from a white nationalists once they've been hurt. Yeah, no, look, there, there's no excuse whatsoever uh, because Look, America's fought a, a lot of enemies, Al Qaeda, the Nazis, uh, the Confederacy. Uh, but of all those enemies, the one that killed the most Americans was the Confederacy. This is uh, true. And, and so Nazis uh, killed way more people overall, but they killed less Americans. So if you if there was a statue of uh, you know that had a swastika on it in the middle of it, and say, what, what, what? Later we added World War II veterans from America. It's just a, a swastika sitting in the middle of a 90% Jewish town. No one would tolerate it, and rightfully so, right? So there's no reason to cut to tolerate the loser traitors of the Confederacy. But the only reason that people still defend it is because they're racist. It's that obvious. Yeah, it's not, it's not complicated. It's not complicated at all, Jing. And, and what's so funny about it is there's usually two or three arguments that people try to make. Um, none of them are real, right? It's all about uh, Northern states aggression or about state rights, but none of that's true. Mississippi, Georgia, South Carolina, and Texas were extremely clear when they seceded from the United States why they were doing it. It was two reasons, Northern states not enforcing the uh, Future Slave Act and Northern states hostility towards the institution of slavery. Mississippi would have stayed further and said, because pe black people's skin color um, was so dark that God made them just for one reason, and that was to be the slave. This is written in their secession documents. And the reason we know it's not about uh, seceding from the union was not about uh, southern heritage or northern aggression or, southern, or state rights is because in the, in, the, in the Confederacy States of America's constitution, they actually said any state that joins the Confederate cannot outlaw slavery. That means you're overriding or superseding state rights. So anybody that's trying to do anything fanciful with history or rewrite history is doing just that. And I thought um, 
if you consider everything the Confederacy stood for, plus the epigenetics, the hurt that goes in, that's passed down from people, grandparents, and ancestors, then you know I'm, I'm, I was not for black children being hurt or harmed anymore from this, you know, this 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 reminder that we were subclass or seen as subpar or even cattle. Those are all devastating points, uh, by the way, and and so th- those are industry. But I also want to talk about um, your personal experience because people think, oh, well, yeah, but the Confederacy. Uh, by the way, it's my favorite excuse out of all those is the Northern aggression. Uh, last time I was in Charleston, South Carolina, me and my friends toasted to Northern aggression, made sure everybody at the bar heard us because if it was true that it was Northern aggression that freed the slaves, then God bless Northern aggression. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so. Uh, anyways, um, but it's still personal and it's still today. So tell us about uh, this town and your parents. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, I have I have fairly young parents. My father was born in '49, my mom in '56. Um, but I, I'm also from a sundown town. Enfield, North Carolina, was a sundown town. And for your listeners that don't know what a sundown town is, this means at a certain time, black people are no longer allowed to be on the streets or in a certain part of town. This was the case in Enfield when all the stores closed at 9 p.m. Black people were forced to be out of downtown. And if they weren't, they would be sprayed by fire hose or or something worse. My mom and dad had this experience of being sprayed by fire hose for being nothing but black in downtown. And my father had even more trauma associated with his experience in infield being that he got a felony conviction for defending himself and family members against a white man who hit him. And 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 what happened was, you know, the Klan, the sheriff, thank God the local sheriff told him he needed to get out of town because the Klan were planning on killing him. And you know, he had to run, but when he came back, he did get a felony conviction for that. And that felony followed us my entire life. It's part of the reason I am who I am um, today. And also it showed me a childhood of extreme poverty because my father was plagued by that felony and where he could and couldn't work because of that. Yeah, when they tell you after your parents have gone through that, and God knows all the things you've gone through, that you're not allowed to bring down a Confederate statue in your town. That's 90% black and that you're the mayor of. Um, how, how does that feel? Uh, it feels like America reminded me that there's a high tolerance for black suffering, black pain, and folk telling me that the monument stood for 96 years and I'm trying to erase history. And I can't understand for the life of me how my white neighbors um, or, or white people in this country, because I've been getting hate mail from people all over this country, uh, can't see that. You know, this is the swastika to black Americans. This, the Confederate flag is a constant reminder that at a time in this country's history, we were uh, cattle. We were less than human. We were, we were seen as second class citizens. And I think what happened is so many people seem to believe that the, the civil rights movement in the 60s was only about getting black people equal seats at a lunch counter or on a bus, but not about the mental equity that's necessary for people to be recognized as full citizens. Yeah, so if people want to say that Confederacy is their heritage, your heritage can kiss my ass. Your heritage was deeply racist, treated people as subhuman, and was one of the worst heritages in the history of the world. So suck on that. All right, so Mondale, just real quick before I get to the Black Male Voter Project. I'm curious, your parents' reaction, right? I mean, having lived that racist past in that town, how proud are you they that you became the mayor? 
I think I think I mean, you know, on, on election night, I saw my mom and dad uh, look at me and realize that, you know, um, their life was not for any for nothing, right? Um, I'm one of 13 kids. Um, and I think my parents saw at that moment what they were put on the planet for and that was to make me and the rest of my siblings. I also saw um, when, when that monument came down, I saw uh, fear in my parents face when I went to their house to visit them who live five miles outside of town because that's the trauma associated with being black and doing something that would upset white people. My dad, um, sometimes I still have to take him from calling young white men sir uh, when they when they don't call him sir when we're in stores or something together. And I'm reminding him that this too is part of the racist history. So my, my parents were, while they were proud uh, of me becoming mayor and also me taking a stand, they are also extremely nervous. Yeah, I get it. Yep, that, there's no question that's the past, and that. And it's not just a past, it's in their bones. It's they're alive right now and they lived it. And so that's what makes it so immediate. All right, now you're also the principal black male voter project. Black women are prolific voters, but black men not as much. So how do we fix that? Well, Jake, you and I are not the problem with black men not voting. And the way that we fix it in this country is we address a lot, a few things. The first one is that the Democratic Party and its auxiliaries can't continue to spend you know, six, seven billion dollars on elections and exclude black men and only target white women or mostly white women in their work, right? We have a party that know that black men are their second largest base after black women, but they don't, they don't acknowledge the issues and the needs of black men, especially those who live on the margin who are transient, right? So we have to figure out a way that we take away these white consultants power and make sure that we're spending money with black consultants who are running programs that are culturally competent, not addressing Republican talking points on TV. Yes, uh, you know, I, I wonder if um, if we if we were more explicit, if it would help, right? So for example, Republicans say to their donors on TV, we're gonna deliver giant tax cuts for you guys. And they do, they give them, Bush gave them $4 trillion, Trump gave them $2 trillion, and they brag about it, right? What if we were half as explicit as the Republicans and said, hey, you know what? You could, if you vote, you can actually use the government to, instead of funding trillions of dollars to the bankers, we could fund you know, projects for us. Indeed. And I, and I think, you know, I think the problem is like, we know, Jink, that. The people that are super voters, a super voter is a person who votes every election, is not a super voter by mistake or because they got some kind of moral compass. It's actually the amount of resources that's spent on certain voters make them certain voters, make them super voters. And the problem is that resource is not being spent on black voters. This is why Iowa votes more than the Democrats in Iowa vote more than Democrats in Mississippi. It's because the Democrats make a conscious decisions to put themselves around white voters, even though they've not won the majority of white voters in national elections in more than 40 years. So what we need is more resources spent not to be transactional with black men and also understand that there are no apolitical black men in this country. There are no apathetic black men in this country. There are a lot of black men in this country that have a level of antipathy that is real and palatable. And it's and it's directly related to 152 years of voter suppression tactics. And unless we are acknowledging the lessons from Maslow that says a people that don't have their basic needs met can't think about things that are self-actualization. And the way we present polls and voting to black men in this country is just that self-actualization, something that poor people don't have time to do because it's not addressing the issues that's plaguing them. Yeah, it, we'll have to do it another time too and talk about uh, that history of voter suppression because it is really interesting and goes right to right now. 
Um, so, but everybody go help out blackmailvoterproject.org, blackmailvoterproject.org. We'll have the link down below too. Uh, Mayor Robinson, great to have you here. We appreciate it. It's always it. good to be with you, brother. Peace.